All right, everybody, welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast and the YouTube video. This is episode 112. And as always, we are sponsored by Running Aces Racetrack and Casino. And we are back from the holiday hiatus. Uh, and I guess excited about this new format that we have. We're, we always play with our format. Sometimes we do interviews, sometimes hand history, sometimes uh, different strategy things. But we're going to start a new format, and I'll talk about that in a second. A couple of quick announcements. Our next Play and Learn is January 26th. I know we, we had one session already, and those were well-received. And so we've got from 9 o'clock a.m. to 3 o'clock p.m. Uh, Minnesota time on January 26th, a full six hours. And uh, if you're part of that, you can come whenever it works out for you. But 60 bucks for a full six hours of playing and learning. Uh, 20 bucks if you want to come and just observe and listen in on the conversations and be part of those. Uh, Matt Hamilton's going to be our lead trainer uh, for the entire six hours. So that'll be a grueling time for Matt. But uh, he's fresh off back-to-back uh, deep stack tournament victories at running aces. So uh, he's a fantastic uh, young player and I think you'll enjoy learning from him. Also on uh, Monday nights from eight to nine thirty PM central time, absolutely free. We've got these community groups, kind of these weekly chats where we just jump online and we start talking about uh, strategy and hands. And if you want to be part of that, uh, it's free to be part of, but you just do have to sign up. So just go to recpokertraining.com uh, or shoot me a note if you have any questions on how to do that. And one final announcement, I just want to give a quick thank you to Rob Adsom. Uh, he's a player at Canterbury, and he sent a really nice email, really encouraging email about what we're doing at Rec Poker, and he's now supporting us on Patreon. So uh, thanks to Rob for that, our newest Patreon supporter. Okay, so the new format for the podcast, uh, uh, starting this week, uh, we'll have a standing set of recreational players who are going to be the, the primary panel for the discussion. And then every week, we're going to have a different expert come in on a rotating basis. Uh, this week, we have Chris Fox Wallace, uh, who I'll introduce shortly. We also have uh, James Splitsuit Sweeney, Sky Matsuhashi, a number of other people uh, lined up to be our experts uh, from week to week. So it's going to be fantastic. We're hoping that uh, we can provide some insights, some different perspectives on how to view hands, how to view decisions. Uh, and maybe even disagreements, which I think is fantastic because poker is a complicated game. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, what I'm hoping to get out of that is that we start to learn more and more some of the principles behind those decisions uh, that are made. So with that, uh, I want to introduce our recreational players really quick. So guys, just going to have each of you just say your name and one thing uh, you're really hoping to improve in 2019. Uh, for myself, I'm Steve Fredland, and what I'm really looking forward to is just understanding a bit better on, you know, which flops uh, should I be checking, should I be betting, should I be raising with, should I be folding uh, post-flop um, based on the situation that happened. I still feel a little bit lost in those. So that's what I'm looking for there. So why don't we go around, Ben, why don't you uh, go next? And then we'll go Rob, Derek, and Stacy. Okay. My name is Ben Moore. I'm a uh, amateur player from San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, the main thing that I want to focus on this year, definitely agree with you, is post-flop play. Um, and one primary issue is trying to get value out of thin value vets on the river. Great. Rob? All right. I'm Rob Washam, a uh, rec player from Minnesota. Um, the one thing I'm working on this year is ranging myself and other players. In other words, I want to understand how my range looks to them and try to figure out what their range is. Awesome. Derek? Uh, hi, my name is Derek Smith. I am a rec poker player from Minnesota and in 2019 I am um, looking to 
sort of expand my pre-flop range somewhat to help sort of balance it out. So that's something I'm trying to focus on. So. All right, Stace. Yeah, I'm Stacy Nelson, rec player from Minnesota. I'm kind of similar to what Steve uh, was talking about with just, for me, even just post-flop awareness of what flops hit uh, my range compared to other ranges and then really what to do with those. All right. Thanks, guys. And now uh, I want to introduce Fox. And I know, Fox, this is not something you love as being introduced. And, and frankly, it's going to be a pretty long introduction, but it's only a fraction of what I could say. But uh, some of our folks uh, outside of Minnesota, outside of Vegas, aren't familiar with you. And if they're not, they should be. So I want to make sure that people are. Uh, Fox, uh, Chris Fox Wallace. Uh, and and uh, I've interviewed Fox a few times already in the show. So if you want to know more about his background and his, his name, feel free to check those out. But a longtime Minnesota pro, recently moved to Vegas. Uh, 2014, Fox won a World Series of Poker bracelet. He won the $10,000 buy-in horse event for $507,000. And then uh, in 2017, just recently, uh, Fox made a deep run in the World Series of Poker main event. Uh, he finished 32nd place for $215,000. He has career live tournament earnings, more than $1.1 million. He's co-authored a book, No Limits, with Adam Stemple. Uh, he's the owner of Next Level Poker and is currently uh, owner of the Resurrected iNinja Poker Tour. I know he's a gifted photographer. and He's got a ton of other interests. Every time I talk to you, Fox, it seems like you're involved in something else. Uh, but he's been a huge supporter of the All in for Africa charity tournaments that we've done uh, and just been an incredibly gracious uh, partner with us uh, for the Rec Poker Podcast. He's a great poker coach. Uh, and so if you're interested in coaching, uh, check out Fox's stuff. Uh, he'll he'll let you know how to get a hold of him, or you can get a hold of him uh, through me as well. So, uh, Fox, uh, again, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> that's a heck of an introduction. Well, like I said, it's a fraction of what I could say, and everything I have to say about you is extremely positive. So uh, I want to just thank you for coming on the show. Um, anything you want to say on the front end, or do you just want to start digging into this hand, man? I love this idea. This is a, this is a cool idea. It's a really neat thing that you set up. Um, I love having the panel of rec players that's going to be consistent and, and be asking questions and all those kinds of, that's really neat. And then hearing everybody's goals kind of was interesting to hear what it is that recreational players are looking for. You know, when I have students come to me, there's such a wide variety of people that, I, you know, I work with a couple of like famous pros that were on TV a lot five and 10 years ago. And I work with some players who have no idea what they're doing. Hmm. Um, I work with some people who aren't very serious poker players and just have money and want to talk to a poker pro. And I work with some of the best players in the world. So um, I get this really wide range, but I don't deal with kind of your standard recreational. I wish I was better at these $200 tournaments players. Hardly ever. Um, yeah. Those players don't take all that many lessons. I don't know why that is, but that's like a range where I think a lot of those people think, hundred bucks an hour, two, two of those is a poker tournament. I could play a poker tournament and they spend most of their money on tournaments instead of on coaching, whereas kind of either wealthy recreational players who are playing bigger buy-ins or serious pros will spend the money on lessons more. So I'm kind of learning something from hearing what it is that everybody wants to work on. Excellent. Yeah. And I think that's part of what we're trying to do with rec poker. There's kind of this gap. Uh, you've got this, this group of players like the panel here that uh, really want to get better at the, the, at what we're playing, but there's, there's not really a lot of great content that's accessible, you know, directly from players like you. It's, it's either, you know, the, the mass books that are published or it's, 
you know, the really expensive coaching that that's inaccessible for a lot of us. So I think we're hopefully filling that, that void and people like you coming on, helping us out is, is huge. I think you've really got something here. Cool. Well, let, let us know really quick before they get into the hand. Uh, you, you mentioned the coaching. How do people get a hold of you and are you actively taking students? <clears throat> yeah, I'm always taking students. I've always kind of switched to, uh, you know, switched my lesson prices to make them comparable to what I'm making playing poker so that, uh, you know, there was a time where I just raised and raised my lesson prices back in the online days because I just couldn't, I had too many students and didn't have enough time for them. Um, Right now it's at 100 an hour because that's around what I make at the tables. And um, you can get a hold of me either at Fox Poker Fox on Twitter, blindstraddle at gmail.com, or uh, at foxpoker.com. If you click on lessons, uh, there's a, even a place to book a lessons, book lessons with a calendar attached to it. And you can read about what it is I do. There's a whole um, the thing about how I, how I teach and how that all works. That's so awesome. And I think, uh, you know, obviously we're still working on how can we work closer and closer together and, and, you know, get your content in the hands of people. And one of the things is maybe, uh, well, you're out in Vegas this summer, if we're out there in Vegas, we can put some to get some sort of a group coaching uh, thing together, or, you know, we'll, we'll figure out a way to make it happen at an iNinja event as well. I would, I would love to do that. I've, uh, live seminars are my favorite thing, actually. Most of my coaching is online. But really, live seminars have been a ton of fun for me, and that's my favorite way to teach. I did a bunch of those for WSOP Academy a couple of years ago. They were really fun. Done them for some coaching sites in the past. That's definitely the way to go. So when you want to set that up, just don't make it on the day when there's a big mixed game. Right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Why? Because I, I won't be playing the mixed game, so what do I care? <laughs> it's all about me, Fox. Come on. You'll be learning uh, from an empty seat, though. That's the problem. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, let's let's get into this hand. You sent a couple of interesting hands. We might not have time to do both, but uh, I'd love to kind of have you start getting into that first hand and start breaking that down. We might get to both of them because they're pretty simple. We'll see how it goes. Well, I, you, you say it's simple, but I had so many questions reading it. Uh, from a recreational perspective, we'll, we'll kind of see. Go ahead. So uh, my first hand at a brand new table, the blinds were 75, 150. I don't know. I don't remember. I take notes and when I when I have interesting hands, but then I don't always remember anything that isn't in the notes. So I don't know if I just bought into the tournament or if I just got moved to this table. But it wouldn't be unreasonable for me to have bought into this tournament at 75, 150 blind level. Um, I get first hand at a new table. I get ace 10 suited in middle position and I raise to 400, which is pretty much my standard raise at 75, 150. The small blind calls, and we know when the small blind calls, unless there's some odd situation, that he has uh, what we call a shoulders range, um, which, is, which means that all of his range, if you see, you know, from seven deuce being the bottom of his feet to aces being the top of his head, all of his range is right here. So um, he's got ace-10 and, and, and maybe ace-jack and maybe, you know, ace-7 suited and maybe king-jack suited and maybe a pair of fives. But he doesn't have two kings because he's not – almost never is anyone going to flat two kings from the small blind in that situation. They're going to be afraid that the big blind is going to come along. They're going to know that they've got to play the hand out of position. Uh, all, these, all these reasons why people aren't going to flat with two kings there. And they also don't flat the small blind, unless, again, they're just some nutcase that's calling every hand. They don't flat the small blind with, you know, six, eight of diamonds because they're out of position. You know, they, they don't want to be that. So we end up being able to narrow their range right away to kind of like high torso kind of range. Um, and then the big blind calls, and we know very little about 
what that means because that's a much wider range. Now, now two people are in the pot. He's closing the action. You know, that means he doesn't have two kings, but his range is more shoulders to knees. He's got a ton of hands in there, and he would call with hands like 6-8 suited and king-10 offsuit and ace-deuce suited and all kinds of hands that the small blind usually won't. So we know less about him, but we're also a little less worried about him. The guy who was in the small blind was middle-aged and conservatively dressed white male. Now, I think it's terrible when the government profiles people. I think it's absolutely necessary when poker players do it. We, we have to do it. We have to learn everything we can about people from how they look, how they behave, how they buy, and what the clothes they're wearing, everything. So when I see a middle-aged, conservatively dressed white male, then, I'm, then I know some things about the player and what kinds of player they're likely to be. You know, they're almost never a maniac. If he was a maniac, he would have at least had a glass of whiskey in his hand. <laughs> um, and, he's, and this was a circuit event. So usually he's going to be fairly conservative. He's not going to be thinking beyond second or third level. The, the best players in a circuit event are pretty easy to pick out because they're like tired, worn out circuit grinders or they're like kids in three bet hoodies fired up to play. But like the conservatively dressed middle-aged white male is not almost ever a, a very strong player. They're not a heavily educated player in a circuit event. You don't see that frequently. I know that I'm talking to like mostly a, a panel of conservatively dressed middle-aged white males. <laughs> Hello! And, and I'm hoping to be really good. And I'm one too. But um, realistically, that group of people in a circuit event, we kind of know that they're, they're not unlikely to be super creative. So, so if we can stop there for a quick, quick second. So the fact that you've identified them as a more conservative player, does that somehow change your perspective on what their range is or it changes your perspective on uh, what actions are, how they're going to play post-flop? Well, everything, everything that, that I think about them is filtered through that. Okay. So, so so how does that change like their range? You said, you know, you kind of, you let in, you say, well, unless they're kind of an idiot or whatever, they're, they're going to, play this range, it's going to be the, you know, the upper torso range. Um, so part of that was based on the type of player they were. A little bit of it is, yes. Okay. I mean, that's generally true of small blind yeah. calls, but, um, and especially small blind calls against a late position raise. If it was an early position raise, he might have a stronger range and be afraid to three bet it. But against my cutoff raise, he's going to, almost everybody is going to raise if they have a real hand. They're not going to just let my weak cutoff range get in there and see a flop and have initiative. Mm -hmm. So, and then uh, I'll filter all of his range and, and all of his behavior through that lens. I'll think about what that means about them. And then, and then, you know, I play, you know, for most of my kind of bill paying money these days, I play two five cash in Vegas which means that the players I need to know about are tourists. So I'm learning about a different player every, you know, half hour, hour when a new one sits down. And I need to learn about them quickly because there are a bunch of other pros trying to eat their money faster than I do. Hmm. So okay. I've gotten good at, at reading players very quickly and, and understanding how they're playing quickly. And uh, I think that's a really important skill to develop in tournaments as well because you're not going to play with the same people every day. Right. And one more one more comment about what you said too. You mentioned you know they're they're generally not going to think beyond the second or third level. Uh, you don't need to break down all the levels, but just sort of a what what does that mean to you, or what is what should that mean to us when you say that? Well, that first level is what do I have? 
how good is it? And the second level is how likely am I to be beating his hand? How, what does he have and how good is it? And then when you go to the third level, it's what does he think I have? What is he, what is his thinking, which is um, what one of the um, panelists brought up as well. Um, that's something they wanted to work on and that, that what does he think? And then you go to the fourth level. What does he think? I think he has, and, mm-hmm. and then it turns into a mess and you right. have to be immune to iocane powder at the end of it. Okay. So, so if you're <laughs> never going to land where with the Sicilian or whatever that line was. <laughs> um, um, so, so, but what, so how does that actually, if you go into that saying, okay, they're, they're going to be conservative. Uh, they're not going to be thinking beyond the second or third level typically. Is that just something you put away for future decisions when they make an action against you? Or is that front of mind, kind of the whole hand? Or what, what do you do with that information? Yeah, it's, it's front of my mind all the time. Uh, what, I, what I know about the player is more important than what's in my hand and what's on the board. But all of those things work together. It's, it's one of those kind of they're all multipliers. They're not really addition. They're all multipliers. So, um, you know. Five times five times five is more than one times ten times ten. Right. Um, when you have multipliers, you want all of them to be as as high as possible and as even as possible, and that's how that kind of knowledge works. When you have knowledge about how how they play and who they are and what their range is, then you can look at the flop and how likely did they hit that flop and how are they playing, which is going to be really important in this hand, actually. So it's a good question for this hand. Okay, I'll let against you. A different okay. player, I would be deal, against a different player, I would have to deal with this hand differently. Okay. Which is one of the things I liked about it and why I took a note on it when I played it. And then when you asked about hands, it was one of the hands I, I brought up was because I think this is a way that people don't think very often. And a lot of Minnesota players see me as fairly tight. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my reputation in Minnesota. There are people in Vegas who think I'm a crazy maniac. It depends on the day you play with me. But... <laughs> This would be this would be kind of a surprising hand to a lot of people who are listening to the podcast to hear from me. So I thought it maybe it would be a good one. So I have ace ten suited raise late position, um, two blinds call. The flop is jack seven four rainbow. It misses me. Couldn't miss me harder. Right. But it's jack seven four rainbow. It also missed my opponents pretty hard. If this is an eight nine ten with two clubs board. I just probably check behind and see how my 10 works out. If it's, you know, if it's a, say a, a six, seven, a six, five, seven with two diamonds board, then, you know, somebody's hit that. It's much more likely, mm-hmm. but with a Jack seven, four rainbow board, nobody has any big piece of this. If they have a piece of this, they just have one pair. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm going to say there's a lot of Jacks in their, their blind defense range though. Right. Yeah, there's some, but but it's hard to make a pair and hold them. And if they've got one, how how much do they love it? Because we're not just talking about, is our hand the best hand right now? Or will Mm -hmm. they fold to one bet right now? We're looking all the way at the end of the hand. How do we make the most money? That's all that matters, money. Yep. Okay. So when I bet, and then they both checked to me, I bet 500 on the flop. And the small blind check raised me to 1,200, and the big blind folded. When the small blind check raises me to 1,200, what do we then know about? We've talked about the player, what his range is, who he is. What do we know about him? Well, in, again, on this board, 
Yeah. His range, and when we look at ranges, often people will go to specific combinatorics and go to Flopzilla and they'll try to look at all the possible ranges. And, and that's great if I'm writing an article. <laughs> but if I'm playing poker, I don't have time to do that. And I don't believe that anyone in the world is really doing all that stuff in their head at the table. What we can do to simplify that is to break down those ranges into pieces, right? A set of sevens and a set of fours plays the same against me. But, uh, and then, you know, ace, jack, king, jack, queen, jack, 10, jack, a pair of eights all play the same against me as well. When when you say they play the same against you, you're saying they would play them the same way. Is that what you mean by uh, that? Or no, you... not necessarily. I mean that they're, I can group them together in how I deal with them. Okay, how you would play against those different parts of the ranges. Yeah, and, and okay. what will happen if they have those ranges. So yep. okay. if he has a set of fours, what's going to happen is I'm going to end up folding and he's going to win the pot. But it's very rare. We look at those, the, the hands that are going to be willing to play a big pot are very rare. They're really only a set of fours and a set of sevens. Because you're pretty sure Jack's would have three bet you there, pre-fought. Yeah, this guy doesn't have two Jacks. Yeah, okay. And he doesn't have queens, kings, or aces. He doesn't even have tens, I don't think. Very rarely does he have nines. So he doesn't have a hand he likes that much here unless he's got a set of fours or a set of sevens. And if we look at the combinatorics, we know that, you know, I can't quote you the exact number right now, but we know that a set of fours and a set of sevens compared to all the, all the one right. pair hands he can have is a tiny, tiny fraction of his range. Right. So we're really only looking at these, these two monsters that are a very small fraction and then all these other hands that are, that are other things, right? And then we can even say that a set is even less likely because he check-raised me to 1,200. A lot of players, you know, yeah. some, some good players will lead that in that spot some players will check call and then try to check raise the turn on that in that spot. But the check raise, the flop is not that common for a set. It's often a pair or two pair in these situations or sometimes it's nothing and maybe you don't have it and they want to find out. Is that even more true because it's a really a, a, there's no draws. It's pretty dry board. That's exactly why when we look at this board and his range, if this was a five, six, seven board and he check raised me, I have to let it go because he's got five, six or a pair, a set of fives, or, you know, he's got three sets instead of two that he could have. He's got all these draws and all these two pair hands. You know, that coordinated board's going to make a lot more two pairs. He doesn't have Jack seven or Jack four here, seven, four. So we know two pairs, not a reasonable option. So, okay, so, so you're reading him as set of four, set of sevens, but those are really small part of his range. It's mostly going to be one pair hands here. That's right. They hit the Jack. And if it's one pair, it's usually, King Jack, Queen Jack, Jack Ten, maybe Ace Seven suited or something like that. Yep. Okay. All right. I'm listening. I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, all right, how did you go through all of that mental gymnastics in the amount of time it took you to go back over the top of this guy? <laughs> <laughs> it is practice. Um, we still can't program a computer as fast as they are, and all the all the brain power they have to walk reasonably like a human being. And we do it without even thinking about it. Walking is like, I think, I think often about like, this is an incredibly complicated thing we do and it just means nothing to us. It's just standard. Um, when you're in that situation, really my thought process was, I looked at the board, I thought about him, I saw him check raise me and I thought, how often does he have a hand he can go a three bet with here? Almost never. 
his, you know, the fraction of his range that he's going to be happy to see me three bet with is very small. He's check raising there because he wants to find out where he's at and he wants to end the hand when he's got his pair. He's not check raising to build a big pot with a monster. That's a very rare play from a small blind conservative player in a circuit event. You're not going to see a check raise with a monster there. You see it once in a while with kind of brand new players or with players in cash games once in a while, but you know, in that situation, I'm not seeing a check raise. So my real thought process was just, he doesn't have enough here. And, and, and so far I've only shown aggression. So I'm telling a very believable story when I three bet and he's not told me a very believable story in terms of a big hand yet. I believe he had a pair. I think he has one pair almost always on this board. But you still have you still have a set of jacks in your range. I have, yeah, but I, mostly I have aces, kings, and queens in my range, which is That's what he's going to be yeah. afraid of. Yep. Yeah, you raise pre-flop. You you can you see bet you, if you three bet. Yep. Mm-hmm. So he made it twelve hundred, and I made it four thousand. And I don't do that all that often in tournaments where I'm going to three bet the flop with air. But in this spot. He doesn't, there's no way he, he, you know, he so rarely has a hand he can call that with. And there's 1,200 in the pop pre-flop plus the 1,600. There's 3,000 in there. I only have to make it, you know, 3,500 to win 3,000, you know, add 3,500 to my bet to win 3,000. And I'm going to, I figure I'm going to win it like 90% of the time. Yeah. How, how quick did you react after he check raised you? I did it very quickly because I wanted it to I wanted that was part of my story okay you know doing it quickly then makes him even that much more sure that I have aces or kings okay gotcha but you know if you think it's okay in this situation there are times when you should really have it planned out ahead but uh in this situation if you think about it for a minute it's okay because he thinks you're just thinking about what what kind of you know big hand he's done this with and then when you three bet he still probably folds but a, a quick three bet here is much even that much better i think it really scares it's really scary from his perspective if i see that quick three bet i think this guy's gotta have it you know the way i played it i have to have it but you can't play every hand like you have to have it because the guy who has it's going to show it to you and take all your chips (laughs) in this case i just know he can't have a big hand very often and, and the way he played the hand was just handing me chips this is how tournament pros that you see like how does this guy win all the time this is how because they see all these spots and the better you get the more of these kinds of spots you see you're already all of you are experienced enough to already be seeing spots where you just know somebody's handing you chips where when you first started you didn't know any of those Mm -hmm. you just learn to see more and more of them as you get better with reading players and reading ranges and reading boards and then using all that information together then you get you find more and more of these spots. So, so when you see bet there, did you already know if you know if he raises me, I'm going to three bet him? Did you was that already part of your process, or is that you're just able to kind of absorb that information fast enough so when he raises, you can say, well, there's no way he has more than one pair, or is that already part of your strategy when you're c betting? When I was c betting, I knew that if he check raised me, he probably didn't have much. But if it had been a different check raise, I might have behaved differently. The the standard check raise anywhere from twelve probably yeah anywhere from twelve to fifteen hundred, I would have re-raised quickly. If he would have min raised me, I would have thought about it for a second. Mm. That's a strange 
but I probably still would have three bet because that's still usually not a big hand. If it was a three bet to like 1800, then I'm not interested anymore. Something's fishy here. I don't know why he's doing that, but that's an awfully big check raise. Looks to me like he's trying to get all the money in the middle. I don't know. And I just, I don't have a hand. So I just, I just let it go. Interesting. Okay. And that would also tell me that maybe, you know, that big a check raise is a kind of an odd, odd decision, which might tell me maybe he has an odd hand and it's going to be harder for me to read it. And then I'm going to be dealing with a guy who has a hand and it behaves erratically and I don't have anything. And that's not a good situation to be in. Hmm. So predictable players are much better than erratic players. And because he made a 1200, that tells me he probably is a predictable, predictable player. And he is who I thought he was. He's more likely to be who I thought he was, which is a, your conservative player in a, you know, in an early levels of a circuit event who doesn't want to go broke, doesn't think on deep levels. And so, you know, the 1200 bet told me that I was even that much more likely to be right. Derek, did you have something? Yeah. I just want to ask Fox. I mean, knowing that you are, you know, quite certain it's a conservative player, but from the initial reading through this hand history, I wondered if that was, if his raise there was somewhat a little bit creative, just in the sense that you did raise pre-flop from in position and you're going to continue, I would assume 90 plus percent of the time on, you know, depending on boards and whatnot, but on a board like that, it's, you have to pretty much continue. So from my point of view, if I was the opponent there, it feels like a pretty good spot to actually check raise you because I would think that that might look a little bit creative and not super ultra conservative actually, because it does definitely feel like you raise from position because you have a same kind of thing like you said, like a shoulders type arranged hand. And then on a flop that's that dry, of course you're going to see bet it. So it feels like a good spot to maybe check raise. So I had actually thought it seemed a little bit more creative, if you will, or whatever than so conservative. Is there, I mean, I guess the question is how do you, how did you, yeah. At what point do you go, oh, maybe maybe this person isn't quite what I thought? When I say conservative, too, I mean um, passive and careful um, and possibly conservative just in general, which tells me kind of about their, you know, if he was wearing a pink top hat, I would have kind of seen him differently. <laughs> um, conservative tells me about his his whole behavior and the way he sees the world a little bit. Personality. Um, eventually, you know, what you really want is to be seeing, sitting in their seat, seeing through their eyes and in their head. And so you use any kind of descriptive things that you can think of to tell you anything about who they are. And uh, I, I think you're right that there's the possibility that it's a creative play because he thinks I don't have it either. And I would include that in his range. His range could also be completely nothing because he thinks I don't have anything. Um, my thoughts are primarily how often can he call if I three bet here? And, and the answer is very rarely. Yeah, that makes sense. I think the best players, I think of Kuvang a lot when I think of this concept, the best players will reevaluate every time there's an action. What can I do to steal this pot? What can I do to get more value out of this pot? Every time they reevaluate. Whereas uh, even a, a fairly good player is often thinking, please give me a nine on the turn. And then the eight <laughs> comes on the turn. And you're like, damn it. And then he, oh, he bet into me. I got a fold. And they don't think about the implications. It, it, should, it should be reevaluated every time. Okay, the eight came on the turn. 
he bet into me. Why would he do that? Can I steal this pot now? Can I, you know, all the different things that could, if he bets and then another guy calls, can I steal this pot now? Because the guy who called is on a draw and it's the turn and he's not going to want to continue if I ship. And the guy who initially bet can't call because if I ship, he's got the caller behind him. And so he's being squeezed. So then you stuff it in, even though the board got better for everybody but you. You know, there's all kinds of different, but you should be reevaluating every time. And it is possible that this guy was thinking kind of second level and thinking, you know, it's not very often that somebody has a, a hand that hits a jack seven four board when they raise from late position. I should steal this and then check raise me. But I knew whatever he was thinking that he couldn't call very often. And so my, my raise was super profitable in that spot because he just gave me so much information. Whereas if he'd been a very strong player, then I, I don't want to, I don't screw around with that because, because who knows what he's got then and what game he might be playing. Well, and your ability to read people in this situation, obviously for the listeners and watchers, it seems to be paramount on this hand, but secondary too, obviously is just that you had position too, which is always obviously so important and to take advantage of that. So. Yeah. Position is huge, especially in tournament poker when the pots start to get big and you want to, you want to know what they're going to do first. Yeah, one, one other comment about that hand, too. I think a lot of times at the tournaments I play, which are smaller ones, uh, you'll hear somebody, if they do check-raise there, and then somebody re-raises them and they have to fold, you hear them just say, oh, I was hoping you had ace-king. You know, they're, they're not, like you said, it's kind of that oh, first or second level thing. They didn't they will it wasn't really, really tell you. It wasn't I, a range versus range thing. It was just a, just a, just a hope. <laughs> I was just hoping. <laughs> yeah, they will right. openly tell you that there's second level thinking there. Right. Just so, just so you know. I don't really think about what you think I have. I just, <laughs> right. what you, I just think about what you might have. That's as far as my creativity goes. And I want to, and they're, they're even bragging about it. Right. If you're bragging about thinking you might have ace king, then you know, second level is a stretch for them and they're proud of it. Yeah. Anytime anybody gives you any information, use it to create who, your model of who that person is. Yeah. That's what you're going to exploit. Oh, that's really good. Well, let's 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 go ahead and do that second one. We have to end in probably about ten minutes or so. But your your second hand, I thought was interesting. If nothing else, was entertainment value alone. Uh, you and Mark Kroon squaring off. So why don't you go ahead and take us through that one? I love this hand because Mark hates when I tell this story. <laughs> good. So that helps. Mark, <laughs> we'll make sure Mark we take on Twitter. Yeah, Mark and I are good friends. I like Mark a lot. But uh, for those of you who don't know him, uh, he was. I, I often tell people when Mark is around, "Hey, this is Mark Kroon." He was the first person who was ever famous for playing online poker. I don't know if that's true, but I think it is. It's, it's close anyway. He was the first name that I knew who was like famous for playing online poker. He was Poker Ho on Ultimate Bet. And um, he owns a bar in Madison, Wisconsin, Players. It's a great place. And Mark is a party. Mark is uh, a big, loud, fun personality, uh, always talking to people at the table, usually got a beer in his hand, usually trying to get you to have a beer in your hand. And he plays better with after five beers than you do. So it's a good thing for him. And he's also hyper aggressive. If you show him any fold equity, he's going after. He taught um, Annette Oberstad some of the things that she does. And she's known as like one of the most aggressive pros. Um, he's friends with Phil Helmuth. Uh, grew up playing with, you know, a lot of very aggressive players. And so he, he really picked that up. And he is, he is maybe the most aggressive player that I know that is still a winning player. Hmm. I think if you go past where Mark is, you fall off a cliff fast. So um, I got to a new table. We were in Council Bluffs, Iowa, playing the main of a circuit. And uh, 
I don't need the phone for this one because I remember this hand clearly. I even wrote an article about it once. Um, got to a new table and the mark was already there. It was it was well into the day. It was it was later on day one. Um, mark was already loud. I could hear him from three tables away while I was playing all day. I get to the new table. He's hey, Fox is here. All right. So now I know the table has associated me with him. So they th- they're going to think I'm crazy. So then let me buy you a beer. Of course, buy me a beer. Because then the table are all going to think I'm nuts. Buys me a beer. We chat a little bit. Um, there's an old – so Mark was two to my right. And on his right was a guy who might have been 100 years old. It was wearing a John Deere hat. He was like the ultimate Iowa farmer poker player. His net worth was probably 10 times what Mark's and I were combined. Right. Um, so under the gun, uh, blinds are – no, I do need the phone because I, uh, I, yeah. I had this handwritten down. Uh, 15300. Blinds are 15300. Yep. John Deere hat raises to 900 under the gun. Mark calls. Mark's calling like 60% of his range there maybe because he wants to bust this old guy. So just, just floating him. Yeah, or steal pots from him. He's going to outplay this old guy every time. Okay. Um, so Mark calls. I look down at Ace King of Clubs. Um, I know that I'm way ahead of Mark's range, but I don't know about the old guy for sure. Um, he probably has a pretty strong range. I figure I'll three bet here. If the old guy re-raises me, I'm done because he's got Aces or Kings. He's only doing that with Aces or Kings. If, if the old guy folds then Mark and I are playing a pot where I'm in position and I have ace king of clubs and I'm really excited about it. And Mark might even fold. It's hard for him to fold. He would prefer to raise, but once in a while he'll fold if he's out of position against a player he respects. Um, so I raised the 3000. I, the old guy surprised me by calling, which is very rare with his range. He was under the gun. Yeah. I expected him to re-raise with aces, Kings, Queens, and fold everything else. Mm-hmm. But he called. And once in a while, he's going to have like ace queen suited or a pair of jacks, and he's going to call. Um, but once he calls, I know Mark's calling. And now we're playing a big pot. Now there's 9,000 in the pot. Now we're getting after it. And it, But it's going to be easy for me to play the flop. Like I, I have two very predictable players, exactly opposite ends of the spectrum, but I have two players that I know how they play, and they're on my right, and they're they're you know I've got position on them. So okay, but b- before you say the flop, you said they're both predictable. I, I understand the predictability of John Deere hat, but you're saying the market's predictable just because he's predictably overly aggressive. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, and and I don't know if maybe predictable is the right word, but he's certainly reliable. Okay, um, <laughs> you show him some fold equity, he's going to ship it in. You don't know what he's got, but you know what he's going to do. Um, okay, he does it very often. Okay. And, Mark's a good player. He's not. He's yeah, not yeah, no, for sure. Exploit super easily, but he is uh, reliably aggressive. Okay. So um, they both checked to me, which I knew was going to happen. On the flop the of Jack, was, Jack eight eight two spades. Yep, Jack eight eight two spades. And you have clubs, right? You have yeah, eight clubs. clubs. Okay. They both checked to me. I bet four thousand. I'm around thirty thousand behind. Um, Mark has a few more chips than I do. Um, and I figure I'll bet 4,000 here. And if the old guy has any interest in this pot, then I'm done. If he folds, 
Mark is going to ship all in every time. <laughs> it doesn't matter what his cards are because he knows I'm not going to hit a Jack 8-8 eight, eight board that often, and I'm not going to want to call that often. He, Mark's, gonna, Mark's thinking, I'm going to win this if the old guy folds. And so you're thinking about this beforehand. You know if the old guy folds, Mark's going to ship, and you already know what your plan of attack is. Yes. Okay. I know how this is going to go if the old guy folds. I'm going to bet 4,000 Mark's going to ship. I'm going to call. Table's going to think we're both nuts. Was your bet size a is was your bet size a, a part of knowing that is that how you chose 4K? Yeah, um, I mean 4K wouldn't be an unreasonable bet in general in this spot, but in this in this situation, a little smaller bet sets up a lot of good things. I can win the pot cheaply. I can get information about what the old guy's hand is very cheaply. Because he's going to respond with a raise or a fold here. I'm not going to see anything else. Okay. And if he calls, I still, you know, even if he calls 4,000, I'm going to know that he has something. If he, you know, if he doesn't have it, he's going to fold whether I bet 4,000 or 30,000. It doesn't matter. And then if I bet 10,000 here, Mark's, Mark might not chip on me. Right, because you're still giving the illusion of fold. Um, with the, yeah, with the 4,000, I, yeah. I gave the illusion of fold equity. Which is exactly what I what I want to do. What you have to do against very aggressive players, you have to make them think. Here's the here's the spot. Steal this pot from me, and they will try. Just be ready for it because they're gonna because they're gonna push hard when they do. And that's exactly what Mark did was ship the thirty thousand. So, and when he shipped, I snap called and he said, "Damn it, I knew it." He was like, he knew as soon as he pushed the money in, he thought, "Oh, I'm doing this the wrong place." Like he knew that it, there's no way that I'm going to bet into that pot and then fold to a ship from him because I know he's going to ship. And then, so, and I proudly roll a race king of clubs because I know it's good after he says, oh, <laughs> of course you do. Why would you not think ASI is good there? Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> these, and then I see the whole table looks at us like we've lost our minds. <laughs> Which gives you information about that. In the middle, and it's 150,300, and the best hand is ace high. And uh, Mark had some middling hand where, like, I think he could have had a runner, runner straight or something. It was he didn't he didn't have a lot of chance to win the pot. Yeah, Queen Nine looks like he had a gut shot. Queen Nine diamonds. Yeah. yeah. Um. And the table just the looks from the from all the farmers at the table, and then the old guy looked like he was so baffled he couldn't believe this had happened, and we were just a couple of the biggest idiots he's ever seen in his life, and everyone was so confused because his pocket and, nines were probably good there. Yeah. <laughs> And Mark said, uh, sorry, I'm going to hit a 10 here. And I was like, no, nah, you're not going to hit one this time. And then he didn't. And he said, how do I miss that? <laughs> like, like, it was a, like it was a lot to hit that hand. Yeah. And, and further the illusion to the table that we're just a couple of idiots. And then we laughed and he had another beer and bought me a beer. And the rest of the day I played tight as hell because the table's calling everything I do now. And Mark played pretty tight and was aggressive when he had a hand and got paid every time he had a hand. He built back up from like 4,000 to 80,000 by the end mm. of the day. Huh. And I had like 130,000 by the end of the day because when I had a hand, I was getting paid. And it was, it was a beautiful setup from, from the very beginning because I knew how Mark is perceived by the table that it was just so good to have everybody at the table think we were just a couple of idiots. Right. Oh, it's just so, so good Fox. I, I, the time just flies by. Uh, Panel, uh, any any questions for Fox? We got a couple more minutes here that we can spend with him. 
Yeah, I've got I've got a real quick question there on that last hand. Um, you re rate when you raised there, you raised to did you say how much three three K? Originally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Free so flop. I made it. You made it nine. Your friend called, and then what? What'd you do? And then I made it three thousand. Yeah. Would you? I mean, would, would you? I mean, like I, I understand you're trying to get information on the first. Would you consider a raise size again, maybe in that dynamic of doing? Because I play a lot of live in tournaments, much like what you're doing, and I'm finding that the the ra I don't want both callers, right? You would agree it's kind of the worst thing you want there, right? At worst, you want one caller, right? In this situation, I kind of did. Um, because I knew okay. the players and I, I right. knew how to handle, how to deal with these players. Um, okay. I also knew that like there was a significant percentage of flops where I was giving up on this hand completely because they would hit Mark's range more than mine. And I knew his chips are going in. And are you talking like middling, like middling ranges, two cards lower than a nine, something like that? Yeah. If the board is seven, eight, nine with two diamonds, like those two yeah. check to me, I'm going to check behind because I'm not yeah. betting when I know Mark's going to ship on that, on that board for sure. Right. You know, so, I mean, there's some if, boards where I just know he's going to eat me alive there, but do you, um, do you find, do you find that people are calling more for the traditional, like almost three X raise? Because what I've been doing lately is adding extra on like more like a, maybe like a 4,000, 4,200 there. What do you think about that? There are a couple of levels of, of, play where you have to deal with things a little differently in smaller buy-in tournaments you can vary your raise sizes based on your opponents on what you know about them on your hand and all kinds of things and as long as you're not giving away too much you can get away with that um, if you're playing bigger buy-in tournaments with very good players you've got to keep your raise sizes to only based on things that they can see as well otherwise you're giving information away i right. call it range balancing game theory people really like it Right. Um, I, I tend to play a very exploitable game or a very exploitable right. game. Which makes <laughs> yeah. exploitable. Um, and I'm comfortable with making those bigger and smaller raises against most of my opponents. But then, you know, if I play the Sunday at the wind this week and Ryan the plants at my table and we're playing a pot, it's all GTO. I don't right. want to play around with because I know everything he does is GTO. I'm not going to exploit him. You know, when you run into those people, especially very GTO based players. And then you, you can't screw around and change your range size, range your raise sizes up a lot. So I think 4,200 would be more likely to get you two folds here if that's what you're yeah. looking for. But right. in my case, that's not what I'm looking for. I don't mind right. playing a pot against these two guys when I'm in position. If I was in the small blind in this situation, I probably would have made it 4,500. Mm -hmm. okay. I don't want to be out of position. Okay. When, and you're leveraging John Deere hat guy somewhat too, right? Yeah, his his predictability is really helpful for me. Because you know Mark obviously recognizes that too. So for sure, that's why he was in the pot in the first place with Queen Nine, one off yeah. the gun, is because <laughs> he knew this old guy was going to be very predictable, and he was going to. Mark was Mark was thinking if I flop a draw here, I'm going to be able to raise this guy off his hand almost all the time. If I flop two pair, I'm going to be able to play it in a way where I get all of his chips. If I flop nothing, I'm often going to be able to steal it from him, and I'm not going to lose all my chips to him because we're deep enough and he's predictable enough that if I, you know, I'll be able to tell if he wants to go all the way with the hand. With you to his left, you know, I wonder though, knowing you're capable of recognizing that dynamic, I wonder if that's just, you know, what I mean. If I'm, I guess I'm a little surprised he didn't think, well, Fox is going to see what's happening and well, take he, of it. I mean, you can't. 
there's no way to be sure that his play was profitable or smart there. Um, I can tell you why he did it, but I don't know if it was profitable or not. It's hard to say. I do know some, some little more risky plays may be more profitable for Mark than for other people, because if Mark gets a big stack, it's on, he's really good at using a big stack. And so he may take a few more risks to get one, but would he, have, uh, he, could also he have done thinks that? that I'm uh, unlikely to get involved there because, and he's right. I'm not going to, just re-raise him with 10 eight of spades and then hope it works out. Um, I had a real hand and that was just unlucky for him because it is going to, it is going to work for him with me behind him fairly often. I'm not, I'm not Jones to play pots with bad hands against good players who are going to ship on me a lot. Could well, he have done that if he had hit the flop? Cause he did it with air. So he could, his air could have included a Jack or an eight. Very possible. Yeah, very but, possible. But would he have would he have jammed there though? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so knowing the, knowing he, the player, yes, he, he could have caught you then. <laughs> yeah, I think that if he hits that flop, he then he thinks about it a little differently, and he thinks, "I bet if I ship here, Fox is going to call me." But I think because he missed the flop, he didn't think that. And when he missed the okay. flop, he's kind of you know what aggressive players tend to be uh, optimistic. <laughs> and, and you know, so he would he would have gotten it right if he'd hit the flop. He would have thought, I bet Fox is going to call me if I ship here because he expects me to ship here. And I would have called him, but I had two overcards. If he's got a queen, you know, if he's got a jack or whatever, good for him. But I've got two overcards there. I, I probably wouldn't, you know, make that call with a pair of threes, whereas with the ace-king, right. he's going have six outs if he's got a pair. He doesn't have an eight in his hand hardly ever, so I wasn't as worried about right. it. Guys, we got to we got to wrap her up here. Sorry, guys, I'm gonna have to cut off the conversation. It's really good, uh, good learning. That the next time maybe we uh, we leave more time for discussion and questions and all that stuff. Uh, so we'll, we'll make the adjustment there. But we do have to kind of wrap up uh, now. So uh, Fox, I guess any any final words before I give some closing uh, announcements at all? Not a thing. Thanks for having me, Steve. It was a ton of fun. Yeah, thanks. Hey, thanks for guys, coming thanks, on. Uh, oh, let me give a. Hey, uh, John, Soms John Somsky, if you're out there still, uh, he wasn't here at the beginning. I know he was stuck in a commute. John, we uh, just introduce yourself and uh, give us the one thing that you're really trying to work on for 2019. I'll put you on the spot. I'm not sure John is actually here. Uh, I've got him on my list here. Yeah, I see him, but I, I don't see him. Oh, myself. there he is. There he is. <laughs> I am here. Uh, well, I'm John Somsky. I write for Annie Up magazine covering Minnesota poker. And one thing I would like to do this year is learn to have more patience at the table at the same time ramping up my aggression. I want to do th both of those things simultaneously. Nice. I like it. All right. Thank, thanks, John. Uh, just a couple of last things here as we sign off. Uh, Fox, thanks once again. The Rec Player Panel, thanks you guys. Running Aces, thanks for being our official sponsor. Uh, check out RecPokerTraining.com for information on everything we have going on, including this January 26th Play and Learn. Uh, you can also sign up to be part of our newsletter there. Uh, and if you like what you hear, please go out to iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review, subscribe on uh, YouTube, uh, all of that jazz. Uh, consider support, supporting us on Patreon.com. Uh, but with that, uh, this is the Rec Poker crew uh, signing off, and good luck this week on the felt. Take care.